Amen. Thanks, David. Uh, appreciate you and all that you do. Just wanted to introduce David to you. Uh, he is a new elder candidate, and uh, he, along with Daniel Henderson, have made it through the three-month gauntlet of interviews and survived. And, uh, and so we're excited for him and Daniel Henderson both to move into the, the next period, which is the nine months of working with our elders, meeting with our elders as a non-decision-making elder as we continue to allow the Lord to refine the calling in his life. And so I wanted to introduce him to you, let you know that he's entering into that last phase, but also just to ask you to pray for him and his wife and uh, feel free to come up, introduce yourself to him if you don't know him, let him know who you are. And, uh, and so wanted to thank you for all that you do and excited about what God has for us. So thanks for praying. Thank you. And uh, yeah. Jason and Scott, thanks for leading us in worship. If you, uh, if you don't know who the beard is, uh, that's Scott. He normally is playing background instruments and, uh, and leads on Wednesday nights. He leads worship for our students, for junior high and high school students, so they all know who he is, but I uh, appreciate Scott serving so faithfully and for leading us in worship this morning. And, uh, and it's good to see you here. You doing all right? Good. You look good. You look good. A little, little drenched from the rain, but you made it in. I'm glad you're here. We have, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to go ahead and turn there, and if, if you would like, pull out your sermon notes and get ready. Um, we've made it to the point in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth uh, to where he's going to bring up communion. So we're going to be talking about communion and taking communion today together. And uh, this is all part of the series we're in this year, Letters to the Church, where we are looking at these letters written primarily from the Apostle Paul to the church. And uh, we've, we started in Ephesians and moved through First and Second Timothy and Titus. Now we're in First and Second Corinthians. In August, we'll be rolling into Romans and then Galatians and then Colossians to finish out the year. But uh, every one of these letters we're reading, allowing God to speak to us as a church, uh, to refine us and encourage us and challenge us as a church. And so this morning will be the same uh, as we look, look at this very important um, sacred ordinance of communion. So just some background information on communion. I know we come from different church backgrounds, denominational backgrounds, church experiences. And so there's some different views on communion. Um, to begin with, uh, there are some churches who practice communion as the literal body and blood of Jesus. Uh, they practice what's called transubstantiation, believing that when you take the elements, they actually transfer into the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, there are others on the other end of that spectrum who see the elements as purely symbolic, symbolizing the rich mercy and grace we have from the Lord through the breaking of his body and the shedding of, of his blood. Um, also, you may have grown up in a church that practices communion every week. Uh, there are some churches that do that, some that practice communion once a quarter. Uh, and so I don't know what your church background is, but you probably are used to it being done a certain way. Um, I grew up in a church where the elements were always passed out once a quarter. Uh, and we passed them like the offering plates. Um, but some churches, maybe you come from a church background where communion's all done up front, where you, you come down to the front and kneel and pray and take communion. In addition, uh, there's open and closed communion. You may come from a church background that practices closed communion, which means unless you're a member of that church, you're not allowed to take communion. Um, there are those who practice open communion, which means that if you are a believer in Jesus, regardless of where your membership is, you're welcome to take communion. So there's all different backgrounds that we come from and experiences and ways that we like it and ways that it's meaningful for us. Um, at Solid Rock, uh, we see and believe that communion is symbol symbolic, purely symbolic, 
it symbolizes something tangible and real that we have in Christ in grace and mercy, forgiveness and love, redemption, salvation, and the list goes on and on. Uh, but the elements themselves are just bread and juice, and uh, they don't transition into anything. They simply symbolize that which we have already that is very real. Um, we at Solid Rock at least once a month take communion, whether it's a first Wednesday service or in a Sunday. In the summers, we do it in the su- in, on Sundays, which we'll be doing today. Uh, we practice open communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to take communion. We ask that believers in Christ take um, communion regardless of where your membership may be. Um, and then sometimes, guess what? We pass it out and sometimes we don't. We just kind of walk the best of both worlds. And it's funny, we'll do it one way and we'll get feedback. I really like it when it's all up front and then we'll do it up front. So I like it when we pass it out. So we just try to cover all the bases. Um, today we're gonna be taking communion up front at the, end of the, at the end of the service and I'll tell you more about that later. But um, where we're gonna be in, in the scriptures, there's actually an issue of division that has emerged in this Corinth church and it's, uh, it's playing itself out in the way that they take communion. So just to give you some background, um, when we say communion, we also mean the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. Okay, those names get, those titles get changed, used interchangeably. Um, what we're referring to is the night before Jesus was arrested and went to the cross and died for our sins, he was sitting down with his disciples, with his boys, and he washed their feet and they took the Passover meal together. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And at that point, Jesus himself instituted what we now call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper because it was the last supper he celebrated there with his guys before he went to the cross uh, and obviously died and went to the grave and resurrected. Now, the the full history of it started 1,500 years before that Um, with the Jewish nation. They were in slavery bondage and oppression in Egypt. And they begin to cry out for God's mercy. And in Exodus 4, God speaks through his servant Moses and says, tell them that I hear their cry for mercy, I see their suffering, and I will respond. And so what the Lord does is he works through his servant Moses to go to Pharaoh on behalf of the people to demand that Pharaoh let the people go. And if you've read the first 12 chapters of Exodus, you've read this story in up front, Pharaoh basically laughs it off, right? Why is he going to obey this, this Jewish guy named Moses? Like, who are you? Like, whatever. And so God says, it's okay, Moses, don't fret. I've got a plan. I've got these things called plagues. Got about 10 of them we're about to unleash on Pharaoh. And so one after another, they are unleashed. And by the time they get to the last plague, um, God is ready to unleash the death angel, if you will. And so this last plague, what God speaks to Moses to the people is this. Have every household slaughter on behalf of the household a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and spread it over the doorposts of their house. And for every house that's covered with the blood of the lamb, this death angel will pass over and spare the firstborn child. But every house that is not covered by the blood of the lamb will wake up to find the death of the firstborn child. And so as you can imagine, all chaos broke out that next morning in Egypt, and Pharaoh's attention was grabbed. And he said to Moses, take your people, take your stuff, and go. And what God did is from this point forward told Moses and the people, I don't want you to forget this. I don't want you to forget that I have seen your suffering, I've heard your cry for mercy, and I have responded, and I have rescued and set you free. I don't want you to forget it. 
So every year from this day going forward, I want you to have a meal where you sacrifice a lamb. And he, he walked them through all the elements of the Seder dinner to remember this rescue through the lamb that was slain. And all the while, the nation of Israel is celebrating this year after year after year, not fully realizing that they were celebrating something that hadn't fully happened yet. And so Jesus sits down with his disciples and says, guys, this Passover meal, it's about me. I'm the lamb that is slain to rescue you. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about how year after year they would sacrifice these animals and they didn't work. I was actually talking with a second grader this past week and we were looking at a, a book with pictures in it on the Old Testament and there was a picture of the temple there and I, I asked her what she knew about the temple and explained the outer courts and the inner courts and there was a holy of holies where only the priest was allowed to go once a year and before he could go in, a, a, an animal had to be killed and slaughtered on behalf of the sins of the people. And not only that, they had to tie a rope around his leg so that if he went in and had any sin at all in his life, he was struck down dead and they had to drag that fool out by a rope. And she looked at me and said, well, how is that possible? Everybody sinned. And I said, you're right. It didn't work. And that's what Hebrews 10 tells us, that year after year, these sacrifices were being made and it never took away the sins of the people. And so Jesus said, I will be the lamb that takes away your sins. I will be slaughtered on the cross. And he instituted communion as we now look back at the cross to remind us of this beautiful sacrifice for our sins that has brought us forgiveness that the Lord might pass over us. Now, in the church in Corinth, here was the issue. And if we're not careful, we'll be tempted to see this issue and go, well, that doesn't relate to us. What we're after today is the heart of the issue, okay? Because the issue itself doesn't take place here at Solid Rock. But the heart of it does and can. So here's what was going on. Just, just a short period of time after the Lord's Supper, the first one, the real one, right? The churches are now celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper. And what had happened in Corinth is this. They got to a point where they had turned the Lord's Supper into a good old-fashioned potluck dinner. You ever been to one of those? Like a feast on the grounds kind of thing? I mean, they were rolling it out, and they were getting full. But what was happening is those who were embedded in the church, you know, the, the churchy folks, they were making their way up to the table, and they were taking all the good food and consuming it and not leaving anything for the visitors, the non-believers, those who were slower, those who maybe were not the in crowd, and they were consuming it all. Imagine that. By the time you get up here to take communion today, there's nothing left. All the church leaders were just high-fiving and having a grand old time while those who didn't have were going without. And so that's not how we do communion here, so that's not happening. But let's look together, starting in verse 17, at some of the issues going on that we might find ourselves in this story. Verse 17 but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. It's Paul's nice way of saying, I've got an issue I need to bring up, and we need to talk about it. Because when you come together, talking about as the church, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And we're going to spend a few minutes talking about that. But the baseline assumption is that just because Christians get together doesn't mean it's for the better. 
There is a way you can get together, and it's actually for the worse. See, we just assume that anytime you open the doors and Christians get together, it's for the better. But Paul says, no, not so. Matter of fact, in communion, at, at, at the heartbeat of our worship as Christians, you can get together and it actually be for the worse. And so moving forward, verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions or divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So here's what Paul is saying. There is a right division that should be there when people gather. There should be a distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not. Now, not in an obvious kind of way where all the Christians wear the same T-shirt and the non-Christians you know, wear the scarlet letter. But what he's saying is that, like, I get it. When people get together, there should be a distinction in the fruit coming out of our lives between those who are in Christ and those who are not. The problem I'm having is that these distinctions and these lines are being crossed between believers. And these factions are being created, cliques, if you will, this in-crowd situation among the believers. And then he will go forward. There should be no lines of division between believers in the church. Every time we come across this instruction in the Bible, we point it out as a church. Because even though at Solid Rock we don't experience a lot of this as people who are saved and every day being transformed but not quite there yet, we're prone, we're prone towards divisions. We are, and factions and cliques. Birds of a feather flock together. We're prone to push back and be around people who are like us because that's the place of comfort. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. It's difficult to spend time with people who aren't like us. But that's the church, right? And so even within the church, we're prone to gravitate towards people who are like us. Now, we, we preach this. We point it out as often as we can because we're prone to that. And we want to we make sure we keep ourselves in check that we don't become that. There should be no lines of division between believers in the church. Bottom line, period. Now, verse 20, Paul is going to, going to begin to talk about some of the real issues going on there. He says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I don't care what you call it. You, call, you put communion on the little worship guide in the orders of worship. You, you tell everybody we're taking communion. It's not the Lord's Supper that you're taking. I don't care what you call it. Verse 21. Here's why. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. So here's the problem. Nobody's waiting on anybody. Now that's just a basic rule in our house for the most part. When it's dinner time, wait for everybody. Sometimes we don't wait on, on Hallie because, you know, boy, we're hungry. Huh? We try to, though, right? Let's wait. Basic, right? Just respect for one another. They were barging into the, into the worship services. Whoa, it's communion. And just barging down to the front and just taking and eating and drinking. And they rolled out this big meal. Some were getting full. Oh, man, I love communion. There's some good eats off in here, right? And some were drinking so much wine, they got drunk. And the problem was they were leaving nothing for the rest of the people. And then he, Paul, in his very 
um, precise yet corrective way. And verse 22 says, what? <laughs> Sorry, I have an explanation point in my Bible. I'm just reading the Bible. What? And then he asks two rhetorical questions. There must be one of two things going on here. One, do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Is that the issue? Is that why you're barging in and taking all the food? You don't have food at home? That must be, that must be it. Or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Which one? Which one is it? Is it that you don't have food? If so, we can take care of that. We can help you with that. But if that's not the issue, then maybe it's that you despise. You don't care for or care about the rest of the church. Which one is it? Just let us know. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I don't think so. Now, I have yet to see a church service at Solid Rock like that. I mean, maybe after communion, the kids barge down and they like to clean up the stuff, okay? It's not what he's talking about. Where you come in here and go, whoa, communion Sunday. Make your way down here and get your fill and then go sit down, okay? I haven't seen that. Yet, the heart attitude behind this, I think that we're all prone to. Placing our wants before the needs of others. I'm going to give you some examples of how when we come to, together as a church, it can be for the worse. And then we're going to move on to how it can be for the better. Here's just some examples. It's worse when we come together and we display favoritism or separatism. Now, in this particular instance, you could argue probably both are going on. There's a little bit of favoritism going on, right? Those who are on the in crowd are getting all the good stuff. But there was definitely separatism. Now, again... Solid Rock isn't a perfect church. We're prone to that, but we want to fight against it. We want to stand against it. We want to preach against it, even the way we do life groups. Um, oftentimes people will say, why don't we just organize life groups based on our common hobbies or interests? Now, they oftentimes work out that way, but here's why, because that's comfortable, just being around people we like. And some of the most powerful testimonies we hear coming out of life groups are where people who normally wouldn't be together are in to together in a life group, Right? And, and, and God works through the friction, through the uncomfortableness of it all, from generation to generation or from one socioeconomic situation to another, one demographic to another, from uneducated to educated, okay? Now, the reason we don't organize it based on interest is we already gravitate towards that anyway, right? We, don't, we let it happen, but from the beginning, we want to say, no, let's, let's try to put people together who are different and see what happens, we want to fight against this drawing into cliques that so often happens within the church. Now, it's going to happen here. And when it happens, we, we see it, we admit it, we fight against it, we get out of it. How do you know the difference? When is it okay to just be focused on those people who are closely related to you? When you're in environments, when you're with those people who are closely related to you in relationship. Sunday mornings, this is our time to have our eyes on the body. You hear me? Life groups? Like, I love that, um, let me just check and make sure before I say this. Yeah, I love that for the most part, it's not like life groups sitting in rows together. Because when we come together, this is the body. And, and if we have our eyes only on those people who are like us, who we like being around, then we're quickly gonna become a people that are separated. 
And it won't be over this meal. It'll be over other issues. Now, it's worse when we get together and we display favoritism or separatism. It's worse when we get together harboring offenses or bitterness. Harboring means holding on to, stewing in, not letting go of. Um, let's ra- raise your hand if you've ever been offended before. Let's just do an honesty check real quick. Okay. Everybody in the room has been offended from the oldest to the youngest, right? And this one's rhetorical, so don't raise your hand. Like, who's been offended even within the church? Like, a lot of our offenses have happened there, right? <laughs> yeah. So we know that offenses are going to happen. It's not the lack of offenses. It's how we deal with them. And when we come together harboring offenses and bitterness, stewing in it, holding it in, not letting it go, it's for the worse. It's not for the better. There's a third example. It's worse when we come together and we put our wants in front of the needs of others. Now, it doesn't always play out the way it was playing out in this church, but here are some ways that it plays out here. Well, I like it when we sing these songs. I like it when we do this in service. I like it when communion is passed out. I like it when it's at the front. When we take our wants and place them in front of the needs of the whole. It's worse, not better. However, there are some scenarios, there are ways when we can come together, it's for the better. Um, We're going to walk through some one another's in Scripture. These are explicit, imperative commands to the church on how to treat one another. Um, I've got 15 of them listed here, and I'm not saying that these are the only 15, Um, I actually read through the whole New Testament looking for specifically the one another commands, and these were the 15 I found, okay? And so we're going to walk through them together, just a few few of these. Uh, So here are some ways when we come together, it's for the better. These are in your worship notes as well. Love one another. You were commanded to love one another. It's not an option. Love one another. Accept one another. Forgive one another. Wash one another's feet. Do you know that Jesus commanded that? Wash one another's feet. Greet one another. And just to be um, faithful to the scriptures, greet one another with a kiss. I'm pretty sure it's on the cheek, but we're commanded to greet one another. Whose responsibility is it to greet on Sunday mornings? Are the greeters? I don't know who's on the schedule. No. We're thankful. Those are the people who are supposed to be making sure that the connect guys get handed out and all that kind of stuff, formalities. But the church, it's our commanded responsibility to greet the people in your life group. No, the body of Christ. Greet one another. Serve one another. Serve one another. Instruct one another. Be kind to one another. Encourage one another. Be devoted to one another. We live in a culture where people struggle to be devoted to their spouses, much less somebody outside of their family. Yet the scriptures call us as the body of Christ to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to submit to one another. I love this next one. To sing with and sing to one another. It's commanded two times in the New Testament. Did you know that? You were commanded to sing to each other and with each other. So the songs we sing aren't just about what you like. 
or what gets you going, you know? Those songs that just make you, oh, pitter-patter, what's the matter? Like, I'm feeling it, okay? We're actually commanded to sing songs over one another. We come together and we sing, all I have is Christ. In that moment, there's a moment for you to be in your vertical relationship with God, declaring all I have is Christ, but you can't lose sight of the people around you who are also hearing you sing over them, all I have is Christ. And you never know when your brother or sister is gonna come in wounded and just needing to hear that truth again. Your singing isn't just for you. It's for all of us. Isn't it beautiful when the band backs away from the mic and the church just sings out? That is the moment we're being obedient to this command. Sing songs to one another. Meet with one another. Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We're supposed to get together. Live in, har <clears throat> live in harmony with one another. And that's just 15. You may go find more, but you clearly, and I've put scriptural references there, can it get away from these 15? When we do these things when we get together, it's for the better, not for the worse. Verse 23, Paul is going to transition into a section here where he goes over communion, what it is, what it's for. And, and really clearly at the beginning, though, he's going to want to say, remember this. Like, I, I was there. Paul was there. He led them to Christ, set the church up, showed them what communion was. But he's reminding them, communion wasn't my idea. This is something I got from the Lord Jesus, and I'm passing it on to you, drawing a clear connection between what we do in communion as a church and what Jesus did with the disciples in the upper room. So he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, this is verse 25, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now in that moment, Jesus was standing on, a, on an eternal timeline, looking backwards 1,500 years, saying, that bread that has been broke in these Jewish homes year after year after year after year. That's my body that's gonna be broken for you. That cup that has been shared and taken, the cup of redemption. They took four cups in the Seder dinner. This was the cup of redemption. He's saying, that's, that's my blood of the new covenant that will be poured out for you. He was not only looking backwards in human history, he was looking forwards to this day at Solid Rock and every day until he what? Comes back, that we, we would partake in something very beautiful, very close to the heart of God. Now, we as a church in the 21st century, I mean, we've gone, we've, we're a long ways away from what worship looked like in the first century church, right? A long ways from what we wear to the fact that we have lights and air conditioning and a roof over our heads and, and sound systems and all those sorts of things. But when we go back to communion, to the simple elements of this ordinance. We're participating in a worship, a mode of worship that these early believers themselves did that came directly from the Lord Jesus. 
It's very sacred. It's very beautiful. The symbolism of communion, beginning first for the individual, let's just go over that. The bread itself, um, representing the brokenness of Jesus' body, for us as individuals, represents the healing that comes to us in the midst of our brokenness. We're reminded as we partake of the broken bread. Now, we've broken it ahead of time, so you're going to take communion bread today that was broken from a loaf. But as the, the, the bread is being broken, we're reminded of the body of Christ being broken on our behalf. That in the brokenness of Christ is where we find our healing. Now, regardless of where you've been broken, some of you were broken at a very young age. Things that were done to you, things that you experienced, that you saw, some of us, things that we did ourselves, participated in ourselves, right? But for us who are in Christ, we're reminded that the healing for our brokenness comes from the brokenness of his body. In his brokenness, we find healing. And this plays out in two different scenarios for us. Um, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I hope you can look back on the timeline of your life and you can see the touch points where Christ has brought healing to you. Where there was once sorrow, there's now joy. Where there was once ashes, there's now beauty. Where there was once hurt, there's wholeness. Where there was offense, now there's forgiveness. Hopefully, you can look back and you can see the touch points of Jesus' healing in the brokenness of your life. But the second scenario is this, that many of us are still walking out the healing of brokenness. Some of you are broken even today. There's pain, there's hurt, there's a sense of bondage too. I can't get away from this. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't quit feeling this. And so for you, as you take communion, some of us, we're, we're looking backwards with grateful hearts going, thank you for healing my brokenness. For others of us, we're saying, I still need healing in this area. I still feel pain here. And so for us as individuals, the brokenness of Christ's body for us symbolizes the healing that comes to us and touches us in the midst of our brokenness. I don't think we fully grasp how ugly the cross was. Like, because we're a culture that uses it to decorate, and we use the ornate, clean versions, I think we forget that it was an ugly, icon of rejection. Like, this is the place you didn't want to end up. This was death row in the first century. And so whatever your brokenness is, the cross reminds us that Jesus is never too embarrassed to meet you there. So many of us are embarrassed, ashamed of those moments of brokenness, especially things that others have done to us. And the, Christ remind, the cross reminds us that Christ meets us. He's willing to go to ugly extremes to meet us in the deepest, darkest places of our story and touch our brokenness. And every time we take communion as individuals, we're reminded the healing that we've already had and the healing that is to come. The wine itself representing the blood of Jesus that would be spilt for the forgiveness of our sins. I love, as I mentioned earlier, the, the second grader who said to me, how does that work? That can't work. You know, you're right. The blood of animals will never cleanse for sins. It takes righteous blood. 
righteous blood to cleanse us. So God sent his son in human form to spill his blood, righteous blood, that we could be cleansed from our sins, completely cleansed. And as individuals, every time we take communion, we're reminded of this blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that God's mercy and grace might pass over and wash over us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 16 remind us, though, that the cross wasn't just for us individually. It has a community implication. In verse 14 of Ephesians 2, speaking of, him, of Jesus himself, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14 of Ephesians says, For he himself, being Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one. That's talking about our relationship horizontally with one another. Has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16. And... And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So something beautiful has happened on the cross. First and foremost, the vertical relationship between man and God, the brokenness of that relationship has been healed. We've been given access to our Heavenly Father. He communes with us. He speaks to us. He hears our prayers. But there's also a horizontal restoration that has taken place at the cross. That's my relationship with you. And that any hostility we might have towards one another was killed on the cross. It was a very hostile event. I encourage you, read the gospel accounts of Jesus dying on the cross, in particular from the gospel of John, who was there to see most of it. They, they pulled out his beard. They spat in his face. They ripped his clothes off. They put a mocking crown of thorns on his head and pushed it with a stick to make sure it went down into the flesh of his head, they beat him, they flogged him, they humiliated him in public, they crucified him. It was a very hostile event. When you see it, I don't know if you've ever been in those real life moments where somebody's acting out in hostility or violence and everything within you, especially as a parent, you just wanna shut it down. Like I feel like if we had been in that moment of the cross, like the hostility of it all, enough, enough, right? But what was happening was all of our hostility was being heaped up upon Jesus. So the cross not only has vertical implications, relationship with God, but horizontal implications. One of the most powerful um, parables that Jesus teaches on reconciliation is in Matthew 18. It's where Peter and him are dialoguing about forgiveness and how many times you have to forgive somebody and and Peter thinks he's being super spiritual. He's like, how about seven times? And Jesus responds with a cultural idiom, 70 times seven, meaning there's not an end to it. Then he teaches a parable. He says, Peter, let me tell you a story about a king who wanted to settle accounts. You may be familiar with the parable. And he calls a servant in who owed him more money than he could have paid back in 200,000 years of annual wages. He couldn't have paid back this debt to represent our vertical debt to God. It was impossible to pay it back. The king forgives him of his debt. Do you remember how the rest of the parable goes? The forgiven servant does what? Goes out and finds somebody who owes him money. Now, horizontally, a very realistic debt, something that could have been paid back in a few months, and instead of extending forgiveness, what does he do? He demands payment and has him thrown in jail. And the, and the king catches wind of this and does what? Shuts the whole thing down. Says, oh, is this how we're going to operate? Really? 
That's what you're gonna do with my vertical forgiveness? That's how you're gonna trample on my grace that I've poured out on you? I don't think so. And the first servant then is thrown in prison. Symbolizing what? That what God does in us vertically, we must extend horizontally. This is, a, this is one of the most common places I go to in counseling with somebody who's struggling with forgiveness. See, here's the thing. We've all been offended, but nobody in this room has been more offended than Christ. You've probably been trampled on at some point in your life, some of us more than others, okay? Some of us more than others, but you've probably been taken advantage of, trampled upon, offended, violated, but nobody in this room has been more trampled upon than the Son of the living God on the cross. And what was displayed on the cross God's vertical forgiveness to us, which is immeasurable, God is saying you must then extend that out horizontally. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 2. All the hostility between us, every reason we have to not get along has been killed on the cross. So, when we take the bread, keep in mind that little piece of bread that you take was broken off of a singular loaf. And it's hard to tell where one piece ends and another one begins. We do it that way because that's the way our relationships horizontally should look. It's hard to tell where one of us ends and the other one begins. We're so closely connected and devoted to one another. And every time we partake of the broken bread, we're reminded that the broken relationships that we have horizontally have been killed on the cross. The brokenness of those horizontal relationships that in the brokenness of Jesus, we find healing for our broken relationships too. As we partake of the cup, we're reminded as well that the sins that we commit once one against another, right, have been taken care of on the cross. Now that's hard, because that means we've gotta let go, which is last week's sermon, letting go of our rights, surrendering what is rightfully ours on behalf of the, the whole, right? But the sin that you commit against me will never measure up to the sin I've committed against God. And the forgiveness of the cross cleanses both. I wonder if we could become a church culture that sees one another the way God sees us, as righteous. I wonder if that would transform the way we treat one another. How about your marriages? If you're married to a believer, do you see your spouse as somebody who has been deemed as righteous in the eyes of God? Or are you quick to stack up the offenses and hold against? So when we take the broken pieces of bread, we're reminded that Jesus has healed our individual brokenness, but our corporate brokenness as well, and he's forgiven in the cup our our sins against one another. Communion itself is also a proclamation. That's where Paul ended. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In our taking of communion together, we're making a common confession. We're saying, once again, this is what I believe and where I've placed in my trust. When we take communion together, whether it's weekly or monthly or quarterly, we're proclaiming together this common confession. I trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And we need to reproclaim that to one another. It's our common confession, but it's also our common celebration. It's the place that we have here on earth to come together and share the one another's. 
as I went through that list, can you, is there any other culture here on earth, whether it's your own household or some other organization that you could belong to, where those things are supposed to be true? Meeting one another, singing to one another, greeting one another, being kind to one another, like, right? Like there's something to celebrate in that. We're the people of God when we come together. And so when we take communion together, we're celebrating that collectively. All right, last three verses, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So that should get our attention. Whoa, wait a second. We need to talk about what it means to take the Lord's Supper, communion, in an unworthy manner. So here's just a few a uh, few examples of how we can take it in an unworthy manner. Starting with our vertical relationship, it's an unworthy manner to take communion with an ungrateful heart. Every time we take communion, we should be brought back to a place of gratitude, that we've been given something in Christ's death that we don't deserve. There's no room to take communion without gratefulness. If so, like Paul said, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. You're just eating bread and juice. But to take it, to take communion without a, a heart attitude of gratefulness is to take it in an unworthy manner. It's also an unworthy manner to take communion with unconfessed sin. And what I mean by unconfessed, I mean knowledgeably harboring, hiding, holding something back. I mean, think of the paradox. We're celebrating the forgiveness that we have while at the same time holding something back from God. So the first thing is vertical relationship. Second thing is horizontal relationship. It's an unworthy manner to take communion and disobedience to the one another's. Of scripture. That's what they were doing, trampling over one another, putting their own wants in front of the needs of somebody else. It's an unworthy manner to take communion while participating in favoritism or separatism. It's an unworthy manner to take communion while harboring offense or bitterness. Knowingly, refusing to deal with, harboring it, holding it in, stewing in it. It's an unworthy manner to take communion while putting self-needs in front of others. So what do we do? Paul gets to that next in verse 28. Therefore, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. So before we take communion, there must be an examining of our hearts before we take communion. Um, I always uh, appreciate the way that... uh, the Apostle John writes in 1 John about um, this calling to transparency and, uh, and walking in the light. Just a few verses from 1 John, starting in verse 5. John says the same thing Paul said, by the way. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, passing on exactly what we got from Jesus, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, vertical relationship, we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we're lying and we do not practice the truth. But, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. You see that vertical, horizontal connection there? When we walk in transparency in the light, we walk in forgiveness of sins, our vertical relationship is intact, our horizontal relationship is also intact. Verse 8 says, "If if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him 
a liar and his word is not in us. It's pretty challenging. There's some good verses to go read in a time of self-reflection just to check your own heart before taking communion. Um, Jesus says it this way very practically in Matthew 5. He's talking about worship and he, he says this, that if you come, in verse 23, he says, so if you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're bringing a vertical gift to God of worship, you're bringing your gift to the altar, and you remember that your brother, a horizontal relationship, has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, leave that vertical gift there, set it down, and do what? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. That's from Jesus himself. So Paul says, let each person examine himself. And we'll walk through in just a minute some things that we can ask ourselves just to examine our own hearts before we take communion. But this last word from Paul in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's a really interesting play on words here. The word body in Greek is soma. It's the human body. And Paul, from chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12, is interchangeably using that to talk about the body of Christ, like the one that died on the cross that was beaten, that was tortured, and then he'll, without even warning, will switch and start talking about us as the body. And he starts going back and forth between the two. And I think the reason he, is that he doesn't want us to draw a distinction between the two. We, when we see the suffering of Christ, when we think about his body being broken, his blood being shed, we think about each other. He uses it interchangeably. And here he says, anyone who eats and drinks, talking about communion, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Bible calls Christians to self-examination before taking the Lord's Supper. Not after, before. Believers should examine their lives for unconfessed sin. If you're taking notes. And believers should examine their lives for broken relationships. So let's walk through just some, some questions for you um, to think through. And, uh, and then we'll get ready to take communion together. Um, but before we do, let me just kind of give us some instructions. So today, what we're going to do, when I get done uh, praying and get off the stage and Jason and Scott are back up here, they're going to be playing some instrumental music. And what we're doing is we're giving time for us to examine ourselves. We're giving time for you to spend some time with the Lord, just checking vertical relationship with the Lord. If you realize, you know what, I haven't prayed in like seven days, I'm not going to run up there and grab communion. I'm going to spend some time here talking with the Lord. Um, maybe you recognize or God helps you see some unconfessed sin. So before you run up to take communion, you spend some time with the Lord just bringing that before him and thanking him for the forgiveness you have over that sin before you come celebrate it. Whatever that looks like for you, we want you to spend some time, okay? You're welcome to come down here to the front and pray. Um, our prayer partners will be available. We all have some elders in the room as well. Our prayer and counseling rooms are available. Um, you might just need to step out and go make a phone call and just follow Jesus' Jesus's advice and go call somebody who there's an offense that you have with. Maybe they're here and you just need to pull somebody aside and go talk and pray and get things right horizontally before you bring your vertical offering. Um, but we're gonna give you some time to do that, to evaluate, to examine yourselves. And then without any notice, I will have already prayed and everything is set. As you feel led, you can come up and get your communion. You can take it up here. Some may want to kneel and just take it up here. Some may want to take it back to your seats. Some may want to go to the communion room. There's not going to be a right or wrong way to do it. 
but that we examine ourselves first. You might wanna come by yourself. You might wanna come with your family or with a close friend. You're welcome to do that, okay? So that's what we're gonna do in just a minute. But here's some questions I want us to be thinking through before we come to take communion today. First of all, let's evaluate our vertical relationship. Have I spent time in my relationship with God through prayer and reading his word? Am I ready to take communion with a grateful heart? Is there any unconfessed sin in my life that I need to deal with before I take communion? Okay, I'm just gonna, that's for you to wrestle with. But we also need to think about our horizontal relationships. Maybe as we were going through the list of one another's, I encourage you maybe to go back and read through them again. Are there any of the one another commands that you know you've neglected towards another person? Have you had any times where you realize, you know what, I've participated in favoritism or separatism? Have you been harboring any offenses or bitterness towards another believer? And lastly, maybe this is a question you ask, have I been putting my wants before the needs of others? There's just a few examples. Um, We're gonna pray that God's Holy Spirit would walk you through a time of just examining your hearts and then we want, to, we want to take communion together with grateful, glad hearts. I want to pray first, and Jason and Scott, if you guys would come back up. Um, I want to say this. You know, last summer was the first summer we took off um, from doing First Wednesdays, and we started doing it on Sundays during the summer. And so in June of last year, um, the first time we did this, um, we actually had a lady who wasn't a Christian. She gave her life to Christ that Sunday. And, uh, and so um, we want to just extend that invitation that is open for you today. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, we want you to know that God is inviting you to taste and see that his grace and mercy are good. That what we celebrate symbolically up here is available to you right now in this moment. By simply believing in your own heart and confessing with your own words that Jesus is the son of the living God and he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. The Bible says if you believe and confess that, you're saved. You will be rescued. Your sins will be forgiven and you'll have something to celebrate. So I'm gonna pray for you right now and if you'd like to talk with somebody, again, our prayer partners will be here. And maybe today would be the day you would take communion for the first time as a Christian. I'm gonna pray that that would happen for you today. Let's pray together.